At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells a parable of two men. A wise man builds his house on the rock. A foolish man builds his house on the sand. And on the surface, there isn't much difference between these two houses. Perhaps they both had wooden studs and maybe a brick facade, perhaps metal siding around the other three sides. These two homes might have been constructed by the same builder, maybe using the same materials, perhaps employing the same methods. It wasn't until the hurricane hit that the differences in construction became apparent. The house that stood on the sand collapsed from the rain and the wind and the floods. And Jesus said, great was its fall. Whereas the house that was built on the rock, its foundation never budged. It remained solid. It had a steady, not a shaky foundation. And Jesus explained the parable. He said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. But then he identifies the foolish man, everyone who hears but does not do my words. In Jesus' parable, the foundation of each house determined its future. Jesus told this parable to his disciples. But he could have been describing the first two kings of Israel. David feared the Lord, so much so that he refused to harm Saul even when it was within his power to do so. Saul was God's anointed, whereas Saul He had no fear of God. Always acting on impulse instead of conviction. Saul did what was best for Saul. Obeying God was not a high priority for King Saul. And as a result, because of the different foundations on which these two lives were built, when the pressure gets applied, Saul folds like a cardboard box in a thunderstorm. David remains strong. Tonight, we're going to look at the tragic fall of a once tall Saul. And the words of Jesus will come to mind more than once tonight. And great was his fall. Well, beginning in chapter 27, And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. Now that's not what David had just said with his mouth, remember. You remember the last chapter that we studied? Verse 24, after sparing Saul for the second time, David had cried out, As your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all trouble. That was a statement of faith, but that's not what he's saying now. It's interesting, what he declared to the world, he now doubts in his heart. David has made the right confession. He said the right words, but now he's struggling in his heart to back up his prayer with faith. Sound familiar? (laughs) Boy, remember, faith is measured by attitude, not by articulation. Twice now, David has had Saul dead in his sights, in the sights of his rifle, but he's refused to pull the trigger. Of the 600 men in David's posse, remember 599 of them thought he was nuts. Only David had the right clue. Everyone had assumed that God had delivered David's enemy Saul into his hand so he could kill him. Only David thought that God might have turned Saul over to him so he could bless him and have mercy on him. This was such a huge test for David. Would David fear the Lord and honor God's anointed? Or would he not? Of course, David passed the test. But here was the problem. He passed the test and nothing changed. What happens to you when you pass the test and nothing changes? Hey, when you do the right thing, aren't you supposed to be rewarded? And isn't that reward supposed to come instantly? Don't all the stories of obedience have a happy ending? Put God first and you come from behind to win the game. Isn't that supposed to be how it plays out? In his book, A Tale of Three Kings, Gene Edwards, he writes this about this particular time in David's life. He says, these were David's darkest hours. 
You know them as his pre-king days, but he didn't. He assumed this would be his lot forever. You see, the combination of his crew's disappointment, God's apparent indifference to his plight, and his own disillusionment had caused a deep, dark depression to settle over him. David is just about out of options when he says, There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, and Saul will despair of me to seek me any more in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. David figured he'd be better off taking his chances with the Philistines than with King Saul. Then David arose and he went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And so David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. You remember chapter 21. This is now David's second try at hiding out in the city of Gath. And it's still a mystery to me why in the world he chose the town of Gath. Remember, this was Goliath's hometown. There weren't many friends of David over in Gath. He faced some personal family vendettas in the city of Gath. Well, it was told David, Saul, that David had fled to Gath, and so he sought him no more. And then David said to Achish, and this time David tries a different approach with the king of Gath. You remember on his first visit, he got cold feet before Achish, and he pretended to be mad. You remember that? He feigned a craziness and insanity. Of course, the king said he had all the crazy people he wanted in Gath. He didn't need one more, and so he sent David away. This time, though, David promises to be a good citizen. He says, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country, that I may dwell there, for why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? All I'm looking for, king, is just a nice little suburb outside of Gath. Verse 6, and so Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one year and four months. And David and his men went up and raided the Gersherites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. In other words, David eliminated any eyewitnesses. He didn't want word to get back to King Achish that he was attacking people who were friendly to the Philistines. Then Achish would say, Where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah or against the southern area of the Jeralmalites, which were families of the tribe of Judah, or against the southern areas of the Kenites who were allies of Judah. In other words, David had the king of Gath convinced that he had turned into a desert pirate and that he had actually turned on his own people and their allies. It's my hunch that David was splitting the spoils with Achish so that King Achish wouldn't ask too many questions. Achish thought that David had turned into Captain Jack Sparrow, and his men were now the pirates of the Judean. Now David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did, and thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. And so Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him, therefore he will be my servant forever. Now David has conjured up a clever ruse. But notice this. Though David is no longer in Israel, Israel is still in David. And David is functioning here as kind of an undercover agent. And he's actually pilfering these Philistine villages the whole while Achish thinks he's turned over and he's attacking the Israelites. You know, in a sense, this is the job of every Christian. Think about it. 
We live behind enemy lines. We're surrounded by the enemy. In order to survive, we need to live peaceably with the folks around us. But then we also need to use our position shrewdly. And while living peaceably in this hostile world, at the same time, we need to be winning battles for God to promote his kingdom. And so really David's situation parallels us in an interesting way. Well, chapter 28 begins. Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. And David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. David's playing along. And Achish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Achish was convinced that David had swapped sides, that he had been a traitor. He'd now flipped over to the Philistine cause. Meanwhile, back in Saul's court, King Saul reaches some new heights of madness. Notice verse 3. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. Now Samuel has been God's prophet to Israel. For decades now, whenever God has wanted to deliver a message to his people, God has gone through his prophet Samuel. And Saul is just about to need some important guidance. But the problem here, the reason this verse is inserted, is that Samuel's no longer around. Who is Saul going to turn to? Who can he go to for direction? Verse 3. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Now, this was a noble act from Saul's earlier years. You remember Saul started out sincere. He wanted to serve God. Problem, he just wanted to serve himself more. That's the problem with a lot of people. And in a stand for righteousness, Saul had excommunicated the witches and the New Age channelers and the palm readers and the fortune tellers and the astrologers, everyone who had dabbled in the occult. Guys, be careful of any method of obtaining supernatural power or guidance that sidesteps God. This is what the Bible calls the occult or spiritism. We're forbidden to practice such things. But once again, and this was a trait indicative of Saul, the king fails to obey God fully. This is where we get into trouble. When we don't fully obey the Lord. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 27, God had commanded Israel, A man or a woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirits shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Is that what Saul did? He didn't stone them. He didn't kill them. He just ran them out of town. If Saul had obeyed, and if he had eliminated these occultists as God had commanded him, this sad chapter would have never happened. Here's what happened. Saul falls into the trap of his own partial obedience. And let me warn you, that's what partial obedience does. It becomes your own snare. Verse 4. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. And this is deep into the heartland of Israel. The Philistines are making an aggressive advance here. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by the prophets. You remember, Saul's downfall had occurred 30 years earlier, when he failed to obey the Lord at Gilgal. Because he didn't do what God had told him to do afterwards, we were told the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Problem now is he's in desperate need of guidance. He tries to pray, but the heavens are like brass. And Samuel is no longer around to bail him out. Understand, God isn't trying to be mean to Saul. But why do we expect God to speak to us when we don't obey what he's already told us? You ever thought about that? You see, Saul had already proved that he was unwilling to obey God. He was unwilling to serve God. Why should God give him further instructions? Saul can pray all he wants, but God won't play. That's the issue here. Well, then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman 
who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Now, Endor was in Philistine territory. And there is a tradition that suggests that this witch was actually the mother of Abner, who was Saul's general at the time. And this is why Saul's men didn't have to go far to search for a medium. Abner knew where his mom was at. She was down in Endor. The other reason that Saul met this witch in Endor was because he knew he was committing an abomination. And he didn't want anybody to see him. He was too ashamed to meet with her outside. So he met her indoors. And that's why they met in Endor. And so Saul disguised himself and he put on other clothes and he went and two men with him and they came to the woman by night. Saul knew he was committing an abomination. The king was ashamed of his actions, so he came to the witch incognito. Saul shows up disguised in costume. Call it the first Halloween costume. Remember, after Saul's rebellion against God at Gilgal, Samuel had warned Saul, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And I'm sure that at the time, Saul was appalled at Samuel's statement to accuse him of being guilty of a sin like witchcraft. Who would have ever thunk that Saul would eventually turn toward a witch for guidance? How can rebellion be on the par with witchcraft? And yet here, because of Saul's persistent rebellion, he eventually does turn to Satan and to witchcraft for guidance. Guys, be careful of undercover evils. Be careful of these subtle evils we hold in our hearts. Sins of the heart ultimately lead to abominable acts. There's also a little-known Jewish legend that says when Saul walked up to the witch at Endor, she had this silly grin on her face. He's just kind of smiling with this kind of smirk on her face and all. And, and when Saul walked up to her, he threatened her. He said, woman, wipe that smile off your face. And when she refused, Saul hauled off and slapped her. Well, later he was arrested and charged with striking a happy medium. <laughs> my, oh, my. Well, in reality, Saul asked the woman and he said, please conduct a seance for me. And bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Saul wants to talk to the dead, a particular practice that was forbidden by God. And then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums. Remember, he's in disguise. And the spirit is from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? The witch has no idea who she's speaking to and how far the king had fallen from God. He would be consulting her. And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you from this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. And what happens next is a total surprise. The witch doesn't even have time to quote her incantations and to cast her mysterious spells. All of a sudden, she is shocked by what she sees. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. She realizes that this is a sting operation. At least that's what she thinks. She's about to get by. This is a setup. Notice when the witch sees Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. As soon as she saw a real person, she became frightened. She was scared spitless. Philip Keller, he writes this of this incident. In terror, she screamed. For this was not the usual weird apparition that came to her otherwise beclouded mind and deluded spirit. This was an act of the living Lord. This was the one time in her life when what she asked for truly happened. That's why she was so scared. See, I believe she was shocked by the reality of the phenomena. Normally a seance was a farce. She was pulling the wool over somebody's eyes to take their money. Or perhaps 
a demon appeared. And she recognized it as such. Evidently, on this occasion, this was an exception that had never occurred before. God allowed Saul a brief communication with Samuel. The only other time that I'm aware in the Bible that this happens is on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Elijah and Moses appear and talk to Jesus. Moses certainly had returned from the dead. Normally, though, this practice is forbidden. The spirit world obeys God's boundaries. And Luke chapter 16 reveals the travel rules for the dead. You want to know what the travel rules are for all dead people? Here it is. You remember when the rich man in hell wanted to return and warn his lost brothers of the horrors that awaited them if they didn't repent and come to God? God forbid him to return to this earth. If they haven't listened to Moses and the prophets, what makes you think they're going to listen to you? He was forbidden to pass over that gulf or to come back to this life. You see, once you've been assigned to heaven or hell, there are no passes. There are no furloughs. What happens here in 1 Samuel chapter 28 is the exception to the normal rules of eternity. Verse 13 tells us, And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a spirit ascending out of the earth. And so he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stopped with his face to the ground and bowed down. And now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? In other words, I was having a great time. (laughs) You're pulling me away from the party, man. What's the deal here? He's a little perturbed for being disturbed. That's why if I have a heart attack and I fall dead and one of you guys comes up here and does CPR on me and revives me, first thing I'm going to do is punch you in the mouth. Why'd you do that to me? I was with Jesus, man. I was, I was partying with the Lord. Why did you bring me back to this world? That was kind of Samuel's reaction. And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me. And God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. And then Samuel said, why then do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And I told you that a long time ago. And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and he's given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice and execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Now, not necessarily in paradise, but in the afterlife. That's what he's saying. In other words, tomorrow you're going to die. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. And then immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. I would imagine so. Saul had been sentenced by God. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I won't eat. And so his servants, together with the woman, urged him. And he heeded their voice. And then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. And now the woman had a fatted calf in the house. And she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. And so she brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate. And then they rose and went away that night. And look at this, sadly, Saul's last meal was at the table of a witch. You know, David said, the Lord has prepared a table before me. David ate at the Lord's table. 
It's sad that Saul's last meal was at the table of a witch. And it's obvious here what Saul ate. She took flour. She needed it. She made bread. Put this all together. Put this whole story now all together. You've got Saul. You've got Samuel. You've got the witch. Saul, Sam, witch. Saul, sandwich. <laughs> obvious what he ate. A Saul sandwich. Chapter 29, it just goes on and on and on tonight, doesn't it? It's, it's just amazing. Chapter 29. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek, and the Israelites encamped by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Now the Philistine army, they're preparing for a big battle. And the five rulers of the five Philistine city-states, they want to see a show of force. And so they organize this military parade. The Philistine army marches in front of this packed grandstand. Imagine the flags all flapping in the breeze and the horses snorting and the sandals are polished and the uniforms are pressed. And at the end of the line, There's Achish, king of Gath. But wait, Achish is not the end of the line. There's another battalion pulling up the rear. And then the princes of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And that was a very interesting question. It's amazing nobody has asked this question before. What are the Hebrews doing here? Even the heathen Philistines knew that David was out of place. It was odd to see David on their side of the ball. I wonder how many Christians have been asked the same question. Has anyone ever approached you and said, Hey, you're a Christian. What are you doing here? In a bar? Or maybe in the wrong part of the video store? Or maybe in a liquor shop? Or maybe meeting with someone you really shouldn't be seeing? Maybe meeting with someone who's not your spouse in a rendezvous kind of setting. Has somebody ever come up to you and say, hey, you're a Christian. What what are you doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return, that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. And do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? You remember how he got his wife with the 200 Philistine foreskins? You remember that? If a guy's going to rip off a Philistine of his foreskin, he'd sure do it with his head. <laughs> supposed to be funny, but. <laughs> he says, is this not David? Of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. They remembered And these other Philistine kings, they were a lot less trusting of David and probably a lot more smarter than Achish. David had pulled the wool over Achish's eyes. Maybe this is why David went to Achish and Gath in the first place. Maybe he knew Achish was a little slower than those other Philistine kings and a little bit more gullible. Verse 6, Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright. And you're going out and you're coming in with me and the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not favor you. Therefore return now and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And so David said to Achish, but what have I done? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I have been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies? Of my Lord the King. And and I'm sure David was planning some kind of sabotage. He he was going to throw a wrench in the Philistine effort. He he was going to end up on Israel's side. He, He was disappointed he couldn't go to battle. He could have perhaps made a difference. But then Achish answered and said to David, 
I know that you're as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. And so David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel, the valley of Jezreel, otherwise known as Armageddon, the most famous battlefield in the world. Many of history's battles were fought in this valley up just west of the Dead Sea, up in the fertile regions of the Galilee. Many battles have been fought there, but the final battle between the Christ and the Antichrist will also be fought in that same location in Israel. So the Philistines marched northeast to battle. David returned south to Ziklag, chapter 30. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag, On the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south in Ziklag, attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great, and they did not kill anyone but carried them away and went their way. While David was away with King Achish, the Amalekites took revenge on him. They retaliated against his raids on their territory, and they went on on an attack of their own. They burned down his city and his homes, and they take his wives and his kids captive. And so David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. They were grieved bitterly. You can imagine. And David's two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite had been taken captive. And now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved every man for his sons and his daughters. David is mourning the loss of his own family. And that would have been heartbreak enough. But in addition, mutiny breaks out. Some angry men... Take it out on David. They, they want to blame their problems and all on David. Can you imagine a more distressing, downtrodden, heart-rending situation? David reaches an all-time new low. As the old saying goes, he's lower than a snail's belly. That's pretty low. You know, in high school, I played quarterback on the football team. And there's an old saying that's true of quarterbacks. When the team wins, the quarterback gets too much credit And when the team loses, the quarterback takes too much of the blame. This is also true of leaders. It's certainly true of pastors. It reminds me of the old pastor who turned the church over to a young man. And along with the keys to the church, he handed the young pastor three envelopes. And each of the envelopes was numbered one, two, three. Well, the old guy told the new pastor, he said, son, when the honeymoon's over, I mean, when you get through this little initial giddy phase and the criticism starts, you need to open envelope one. Well, it didn't take long for the young man to feel the need. It started to come under fire. And so you opened the first envelope and it said, blame everything on the former pastor. And so that's what he did. And sure enough, it worked, at least for a while. But soon the opposition was added again. And so the pastor opened up envelope number two, and it read, blame everything on the denomination. Again, he tried it. It worked. He followed the advice and stayed off the vultures for a little while longer. Finally, the criticism grew back to great proportions. The attacks were more frequent. People were getting bitter. And so this time, the young man opened the third envelope and read, start preparing three envelopes. Hey, David must have felt like it was time to start preparing three envelopes. But I love what he does. Oh, I love what he does. Notice how David overcomes his depression. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, notice this. In times past, when David was down, God sent people to encourage him. Gad, Jonathan, Abigail all came to him during tough times and helped strengthen David. But here, no one comes to encourage David at Ziklag. 
You know, there are times when God cuts us off from the support of friends and family. He forces us to depend wholly and solely on Him. Through the discipline of loneliness, God teaches us that He alone is faithful to meet our needs, to put wind back in ourselves, to give us new strength. I love what it says here. David strengthened himself. In the Lord his God. That's a very important ability to gain. To be able to strengthen yourself. Because friends aren't always around. Your pastor isn't always around. Your friends at church aren't always around. It's important that you develop the kind of relationship with God. And develop the kind of spiritual resources in your life. Where you can strengthen yourself in the Lord. Are you reading the Bible for yourself, not just when you come to church? Are you developing a personal knowledge of the Scriptures? Are you developing a personal prayer life? Are you practicing God's presence on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis? Are you personalizing God's promises to you and to your life? So that when the time comes, when you feel abandoned by everyone else, you too can strengthen yourself. In the Lord. Very, very important. Well, verse 7 tells us. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, Please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. Now the ephod was the sacred smock worn by the high priest. And there was a breastplate attached to the ephod. It was adorned by 12 jewels that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And inside the breastplate, there was a pouch. And inside this pouch were the Urim and the Thummim. This is how they sought God's guidance in those days. They believed that these two stones, either through the casting of lots or the reflecting of light, somehow shined light on God's guidance in a particular situation. And they would turn to the Urim and the Thummim for guidance. We no longer have the Urim and the Thummim, but even if we did, we have something better today. We have the pages of Scripture to turn to for guidance. So we no longer use the Urim and the Thummim. Now we use the Usum and the Thummim. (laughs) And that's how you get God's guidance, by using this book and thumbing through it. You know, we don't really need some kind of magical pouch to reach into and presto, you know. If you had that, there'd be no seeking God. There'd be no waiting on God. There would just be kind of instant mechanical answers. That's not the kind of relationship God wants to develop with us. He wants to develop a relationship where He speaks to us and speaks to our heart and guides our lives through His Word. Well, put verses 6 and 7 together, and you can understand the dilemma faced by Old Testament believers. They loved God. They wanted to serve Him, but they lacked the persistent indwelling presence of God's Spirit that's part of the new covenant. David knew enough of God, though, to strengthen himself. But at the same time, too, he felt the strange separation from God that he tried to make up through mechanical means, and thus he turned to the ephod. This is why the old covenant is an inferior, incomplete covenant to the new covenant. Well, David inquired of the Lord using the ephod, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered them, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those stayed who were left behind. Now David's troops are moving southwest in hot pursuit of the Amalekites. The Amalekites lived in the deserts of the Sinai. And they're about to cross this brook when David realizes that some of the guys with him are slowing down. Desert warfare, man, it calls for lean, a lean, mean fighting machine. And there's some guys here with him that are kind of dead weight. They're slowing down. And so he splits the group in two. David pursued he and 400 men for 200 stayed behind who were so weary that they could not cross The brook Besor, verse 11. Then they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. And they let him drink water. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. So when he had eaten, his strength came back to him. 
For he had eaten no bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. The poor guy was barely alive. He's almost dead. And they nurture him back to health because he's a possible informant. Then David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? And he said, I'm a young man from Egypt, servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because three days ago I fell sick. We made an invasion of the southern area of the Cherethites in the territory which belongs to Judah and of the southern area of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Ho-ho. And David said to him, Can you take me down to this troop? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will never kill me nor deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this troop. And when he had brought him down, there they were spread out over all the land, Eating and drinking and dancing and just having a merry old time because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. They're eating David's food and drinking David's wine, maybe even dancing with one of his wives. He's getting angry. And then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. And so David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all, silencing his critics. Then David took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said, this is David's spoil. Now David came to the 200 men who had been so weary that they could not follow David, whom they also had made to stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, because they didn't go with us, We will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. I mean, they didn't think the 200 slowpokes deserved an equal cut of the spoils. They wanted to get rid of them. Just give them their wives and kids and tell them to get lost. But David said, my brethren, my brethren. You know, that's such a wonderful thing. David looked past their anger and their worthlessness and their wickedness. They're still brothers. Why is it the first time somebody crosses you in the fellowship? He's no brother of mine. You're not being like David, not being like Jesus. Love people, forgive people. Have you ever acted unworthily to your brother? If you, you know, let him who has the first, without sin, cast the first stone. Well, David says, my brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. Who has preserved us and delivered us into our hand? Notice this is not our spoil anyway. This is what the Lord's given to us. Out of the hand of the troop that came against us. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. And so it was from that day forward. He made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. David establishes a principle in Israel. Those who step out and obtain and those who stay back and maintain all deserve an equal portion. And this is a principle that should be a statute and an ordinance in every church. For some of us are called to fight on the front lines. We teach and we encourage and we pray and we interact publicly with people. But other members of the body of Christ, they they don't have that kind of ministry. They have a more supportive role. They duplicate CDs and they run the soundboard and they move tables and chairs and they help out in practical ways. In essence, they guard the stuff. But both types of work are vital and they deserve a similar cut of the spoils. So take heart, those of you that are behind the scenes working hard, staying with the stuff, you get an equal share with those who are out front leading the way. Verse 26. Now when David came to Ziklag, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, 
to his friends saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord to those who were in Bethel, those who were in Ramoth of the south, in Jatir, in Aurora, in Sifmoth, in Eshtimoah, in Rachel, in the cities of Jeremelites, in the city of the Kenites, in Horma, in Karashan, in Atosh, in Hebron, into all the places where David himself and his men were accustomed to rove. And this was a diplomatic move on David's part. These cities in southern Judah had no doubt heard rumors of David, that he had defected to the Philistines, and David is now sharing in the spoils of battle with his southern neighbors of Judah to assure them that he is still loyal to Israel and to his Judean brothers. Well, chapter 31 recounts the battle of Gilboa and the end of a once great man, the fall of King Saul. In Hosea chapter 13 verse 11, listen to God summarize the reign of Saul. He says to Israel, I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. And doesn't that kind of sum up the life of Saul? In chapter 31, we see God's wrath at work and His judgment on Saul. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Saul had allowed his army to turn to shambles. They were poorly prepared for battle. He'd been spending his time chasing David rather than fortifying the troops. And now his poor preparation is seen in the battle. And then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishio, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him and he was severely wounded by the archers. You remember in ancient battles, often an army would detach a hit squad of sharpshooters whose sole job was to take out the opposition's king. This would have an overwhelming demoralizing effect upon the army when they saw their king fall in battle. And Saul was hit. He knows that he'll either be captured or he'll be tortured. And so he orders his armor bearer to finish him off. He says, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not. He was greatly afraid. And there is a Jewish tradition that says that the armor bearer was Doag. Remember him? He was the ruthless tattletale who had no problem drawing the sword on the priests and slaughtering them. But now he refuses to kill Saul. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And of course when someone commits suicide, what are they saying? They're saying they're more afraid of people's judgment than the judgment of God. This was Saul's problem. This was Saul's problem from the beginning. He was more concerned with people's opinions of him than God's opinion of him. He was more concerned with offending the people than offending God. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. And so Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. A catastrophic loss for the nation Israel. Verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. The Philistines take over the West Bank. Even some of the cities east of the Jordan were also evacuated. This was the deepest encroachment into Israeli territory ever launched by the Philistines. And so it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. They declared a national holiday in the land of the Philistines. The king of Israel, their mortal enemies had been slain. And we're told they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths. This too was a common ancient custom. Trophies of war were usually placed in the temples of conquering nations as a tribute to their gods. 
You remember when the Philistines took the ark in the battle of Shiloh? You remember the Philistines took the ark and they placed it in the temple of Dagon. Even David followed this practice. You remember, he placed Goliath's sword in the priest, along with the priestly ephod in the tabernacle at Nob. So David also put trophies of war in the tabernacle or in the temple. You know, later, God is going to refuse to allow David to build the temple. And you remember why God refuses to let him build the temple? Because he is a man of war. Perhaps, perhaps, God didn't want David filling up his temple with trophies of war. Trophies of all his military campaigns. And thus, he refused to allow David to build the temple. Well, the Philistines also fastened Saul's body to the wall of Bethshan. They chop off Saul's head and they hang his swollen, rotten, bloating body. They nail it up to the wall. It was a way to rub salt in the womb of your enemy. It further brought shame and disgrace to the already beaten people that you had conquered. Actually, Saul's headless body serves as a metaphor for the nation. Israel is now without a king. She is a body without a head. Verse 11. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. The men of Jabesh couldn't bear the disgrace and the humiliation. And so they came at night and they took the body of Saul off the wall. But if you ask me, Saul had been off the wall for a long time. It was really an appropriate end for Saul. The man who tried to maintain his image at all costs ended up a public disgrace and spectacle. Isn't that ironic? But let me warn you, if all you're concerned about is your own image and your own welfare, you too might end up a disgrace and a shame. The residents of Jabesh, they want to give the body of Saul a decent burial, and so they cremate his remains and they bury his bones Which brings up a final question tonight. What does the Bible say about cremation? And the answer to me is that the Bible seems silent on the subject. I figure that all cremation does is just sort of speed up the process. It does in about 20 minutes what nature does in about 20 years. And so there we have it. 1 Samuel 